kick straight into it. Um, do you want to start off, Christian, by introducing yourself and then Jonas and then Sam? Uh, yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Hello, uh, my name is Christian Klein. I'm a cloud architect at Elasticis and I'm also a researcher at Umeå University. I received a PhD in 2012 from INRIA France. I'm experienced in cloud computing, network engineering and information security. I acted variously as a consultant, practitioner, teacher and a researcher and mostly just helping out people learn more about how they can be more efficient with cloud native technologies and how they can gain their benefits by embracing these technologies. Yeah, and I'm Jonas Schultz and I'm working for Cinch. Um, I'm, uh, I would call myself a specialist in being a generalist knowing kind of everything, a little bit of everything everywhere. Um, I am uh, running the DevOps team in our main engineering company. Um, Cinch is a conglomerate of uh, loads of different companies, but I'm in the main one trying to centralize all of the stuff. Um, I've been also in Elmio University, but uh, edu- or ended in 94, so I've been in the business for quite some time. Indeed. Sam? Hi, I'm Sam Texas. Um, I'm currently, uh, I snuck into King as a site reliability engineer and where we work, I work on a lot of the core infrastructure and the applications, mainly in the streaming space. So a lot with, with Kafka um, and those, those types of technology. Uh, long history in startups, um, mostly um, med tech, enterprise software, things like that. So um, I'm very good at putting out the fires that I've started for myself. <laughs> and I um, now try to put those fires out for others. I work a lot with scaling um, both technology and scaling teams, as well as uh, clearing roadblocks. So a lot of project management stuff with a, with a high degree of technical capability. So I have credibility with my developers and engineers. <laughs> Fantastic. Lovely. Yeah. All right. So we can just uh, jump straight in. I think there's a little bit of a lag on Christian's uh, webcam to voice um, so that we might have to just monitor that a little bit. But um, Christian, if you want to just start off uh, with your question, it's a bit of a meaty one. So if you just want to go into a little bit more detail about what you're trying to get in terms of a response. Hmm. Yes. So uh, you have been contacting me and you suggested to have a roundtable about the topic of should you rather go for public vendors or for M-Prime solutions? And I don't really have a definite answer, but I know very many reasons to go for one solution or the other one. And one of the potential reasons that is keeping me awake every night is that there is this recent European Court uh, of Justice ruling that has basically ruled that privacy shield is invalid. It's also known as uh, the Schrems 2 ruling. And it basically said that it's no longer okay to transfer data from the European Union to the United States um, via the previous method, which was privacy shield. They were short of ruling that even standard contractual terms are invalid, but they still upheld them. At any rate, this has kind of had a let's call it a chilling effect on the whole cloud landscape and now we're finding ourselves in a little bit of a legal uncertainty on how exactly will the cloud landscape uh, look like i having worked with very many european partners um 
it makes me sad to realize that, let's say, we do, did not achieve data sovereignty in Europe. So we cannot just cut the umbilical cord to our United States partners and say, yeah, we're going to manage it by ourselves, no worry. But so, so you can see that there is quite a lot of uncertainty on should you go for public vendors and which one should you go? Uh, how should you handle your transatlantic data transfers? And how exactly should you deal with this uncertainty that it has, has um, kind of provoked it, right? Will in the future there be an even bigger gap between, let's say, the US regulations and the European regulations when it comes to data privacy? Or are we looking forward to a reconciliation and then we can all breathe in and breathe out calmly and go back, let's say, to normal? So I wanted to see from the other participants um, if this ruling has in any way affected their business, if it might have shifted their trade-offs maybe in favor of on-prem cloud solutions, and if they, how, how do they exactly see this, um, this shift in, in cross-continent data transfers, and how do they think that it will evolve in the future? More harmonization or more division? Yeah, awesome. I guess I can <laughs> yeah. start to do a little bit. Uh, so in our business, we do quite a bit of data transfer back and forth uh, from the continents. But we have customers that actually wants to send data that they don't know where the actual customer exists. So they can send out some message that contains quite a bit of privacy data, but the uh, customer is actually on a, in a continent that doesn't allow for this kind of thing. So. Um, we have had to decide that we need to classify most things. Um, what kind of data is this? And we currently even do have some um, uh, machine learning engines trying to label all of the information that we send that goes uh, through the cable from, from one part to another. But we also decided that we try to do everything as local as possible. So. In the US, we try to keep US traffic. Mm. In the EU, we try to keep EU, EU traffic. We have other regions like Brazil that's uh, going to be just Brazil, basically. And we have India that's also going to be um, just India, basically. And then anything that goes out of that region needs to be scrutinized before it leaves the country. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but in terms of like, the harmonization between the two, do you think there's going to be more people using on-prem solutions rather than the public cloud because of this? Well, the problem here for us is that we want to have a unified platform. So we don't want to have to know uh, just because uh, it's uh, one vendor or a different vendor or absolutely not on-prem because they're most likely being very local. So for us, it's very good to have a pub or a cloud vendor that is localized everywhere, um, at least so we think at the moment, but we don't know if that's the, the decision that's going to last or if we need to spread or even go into different cloud vendors just because they don't have presence where we want to be. Fair enough. Sam, what's your, what's your take on this one? Um, I think it's a pissing contest between private enterprise and governments. I think GDPR has proven to be mostly a joke um, because unless you wield that as a brutal sword, um, it's a threat to do things. And I'm constantly looking at this going, what's the cost of non-compliance versus the cost of compliance? And then what's the cost of 
still screwing it up, getting audited, and then there being a finding that still makes me guilty. Um, having worked with this problem in healthcare, it, it's I think more relevant in healthcare because you can't even get the you can't even sell to the customer unless you deploy within their infrastructure. Usually, um, that's easier to solve if you have a nice product you can deploy there. But these a lot I think the in my opinion, if I take that entrepreneurial approach, I'm going to weigh the cost of the cost of compliance versus versus not. And the U.S. government especially has shown that. Um, even when the, the FTC fines Facebook, they're fining Facebook fractions and just barely fractions of what their total revenues are. So it's basically the cost of doing business is non-compliance. That's, that's the position I would take. Um, so take the fine and get the work the way you want to. Anyway. It's a bit of a tax then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and mm. I think as a technologist, though, I mean, you know, Jonas mentions they have machine learning to, to label data. I mean, the geek in me says, man, that sounds great. <laughs> but then the finance, I'm sure that there's a CFO going saying, whoa, whoa, whoa how much did we spend for that? <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Uh, are there any follow up questions to go back uh, towards Christian or are there any, you know, because that's quite a broad topic to you could, we could you could speak of that that one alone for quite some time, but uh, Christian, based on the answers that these two have given, you know what what follow up do you have? Yeah, I I think it's um it's really cool to have had Jonas and Sam um to answer this particular question because they had quite let's say different viewpoints. So it seems to me like Jonas has taken more like careful approach, like no, this is regulation. We need to take it seriously. Uh, we may run out of business if we don't do it. Sam, I feel had a more pragmatic view on this where, yeah, well, there is cost to non-compliance, right? It's, it's a bit like um, co cost benefit as with everything. And I, I totally enjoy the fact that these two perspectives were brought. I unfortunately agree with Sam that GDPR has been a bit of a joke that, yes, indeed, if you're looking at the current fines that have been applied, they really feel like a tax and not really as something that incentivizes companies to take data privacy seriously. Um, I'm still kind of hopeful that this initial wave of fines was more like a show that, hey, we can do this and this is going to happen. And I'm hoping that in the end, as companies will learn a little bit better how they can comply with GDPR, how they can, you know, get the analytics that they need to improve their products, but without revealing too much information, or perhaps, you know, how, how can we make an ad industry that delivers the right kind of ads to the right kind of people without boiling down to surveillance capitalism. So I'm, I'm kind of still hoping that this might have been just, you know, one step from the regulator side and that the companies would probably do one step extra to collect less data. And then as each one will go in lockstep, we'll eventually go to, a, to an ecosystem where probably the cost of compliance will, will go down because it will be more obvious how to achieve it and solutions will, will appear in that. And Jonas already highlighted a very interesting future that I hope will be more accessible to everybody. And yeah, ho hopefully we'll, we'll be ending up with a win-win situation where data subjects will enjoy more privacy and companies will be able to comply at lower costs. Um, I'm not really sure if I have a concrete well, I can, uh, follow up I question. Can do a little uh, bit but that was maybe one the reason we actually do try to comply is that we send our messages for our customers. 
and we can't make that decision that they they do this tax or whatever or see it as something like that we get uh, in our contract we need to comply with what our customers actually tell us so that it's not really an option for us to go and say yeah it's just a tax that we should follow we actually need to go with the regulation yeah but in terms of like one of the base questions that you said do you think that will have an effect on the companies you know whether they choose to go on-prem or use public cloud or will they do what you say and just think of it as an additional tax that they need to pay and just stick with using the public vendors well for us we uh, to us it's more about um, figuring out where we can deploy our solutions and having on-prem everywhere is not really an option right, it's not feasible Okay. I, agree about that. I, I think, you know, you enter into an interesting space and I think Apple has taken a stab at this where it's basically privacy as a service, right? I mean, or privacy as a feature. And, and I, I think that, mm-hmm. um, you know, just as, as any, any providers say, we have our ISO certifications, we have our SEC2, we have, you know, these, um, it does become a selling point if if that's what customers are looking for certainly in the, in the healthcare space you're not going to sign a healthcare customer unless you can show that you have your isos in place that's you know that's just how everyone is de-risking vendor selection and also if you're making a, a solution where you have more in-house stuff all over then that's not really something that you need to be as hmm. looking into as much as if you have a lot of different data traffic that you you're, don't really own. So, uh, yeah. yeah. No, it links mm. quite nicely into your question as well, Jonas, about like the cost of all Yeah, so... <laughs> so by all means, just ask... So for us, of course, uh, <laughs> we're looking at um, probably quite a bit of different um, deployments out in the world. And when we started off, it was quite local in a little uh, place called Umeå, uh, where we had most of our stuff uh, deployed. And um, turned out that it worked in the beginning, but uh, the more traffic and the more stuff that we use and customers we get all over the world, we can't just keep ourselves in one place. We need to scale out. And... Having uh, on-prem solutions everywhere doesn't work out. Um, We have even had a horrible story where we had a data center that we uh, were thinking that this is really good. We need to, we can expand very much into it. And then we visited it and it turned out that we were the only ones there. there weren't really any good uh, power backup or anything like that. There was just a little floor fan standing right in front of the, uh, the rack on to blowing air on our computer as the cooling solution. So, yeah, wow. uh, that's not really what we want to pay for. Um, but that's uh, something that you can encounter when you uh, you look at different things. So you need to understand what kind of cloud provider you're looking at. Yeah. So I guess that's a little bit of yeah. where we're starting off. Yeah. But like, Sam, do you want to start on this one? 
you mean like in opinions? Because, like, if we look at some of the questions that you mentioned as well, it's like, how do you afford to staff in the smaller settings for your on-prem solutions, um, or in clouds you scale um, linearly? So, how do you pay someone, and you have to pay someone else for that knowledge? You want to go along those lines? Yeah, it's I, my you know my own experience with that is is um, especially when you start looking into these you know geographies in third world, third world countries. I, I mean, we need a presence in the Philippines, but you know, who's, who's our guy on the ground in the Philippines? Mm. Yeah. Um, and that creates a ton of anxiety. And, and I think then it, it falls back to, to me, it, it's always fallen back to the business question and the right answer is always somewhere in between. It's like, well, is Singapore close enough? <laughs> is, yeah. And, can we accept the Singapore answer to the Philippine problem? Um, and, and that's kind of, I think, where, the, where we end up is in certain geographies, you're going to have a degraded quality of service or in terms of higher latency or lower redundancy. Um, and, you know, we just sort of, until you can have your men on the ground or the feet on the ground in the Philippines, it wouldn't, you know, then you may have to be in the cloud in Asia or Japan, and then I can definitely do solid on-prem in San Francisco, Silicon Valley, LA. Um, and then certainly in, in, in Sweden, which enjoys like some of the most stable and best connectivity, um, you know, on-prem could be the way to go. But um, I think in terms of people time, I mean, that, that's the thing. People time will always be more expensive than compute time. Yeah. But do you think there's a limit where on-prem is more cost-effective than cloud? Or do you think cloud is always cheaper just because you're just basically offsetting that cost elsewhere from day one? I, well, I think it's like cloud could be a great way to get started and going, but you definitely achieve a certain scale where it's it's prohibitively expensive i mean we've seen that story with dropbox we've seen that story with um quite of these these mega guys um you know i, I think it's no secret at king or activision blizzard and king these triumvirate of, of gaming companies have signed a big deal with google cloud platform and now there's this big push to go from on-prem into cloud and you know we're finding along the way that even in that, that at that scale, cloud offerings are either really expensive um, or, or they just they can't achieve the scale that we've built out on-prem. The, the problems are so unique, they're unique to us. Um, so what we're going to, you know, what do you end up doing? You replicate your infrastructure in the cloud and then it becomes, it's not a migration to cloud, it's now a lift and shift and you're just paying other you've moved from OpEx or from CapEx to OpEx. And at the end of the day, I think we just end up talking about which column in the Excel sheet does this problem move to. Um, my opinion though is that cloud is wonderful, but at, after a certain bit of scale, you really should consider or reconsider on-prem, staying on-prem um, because some of these companies, they're making so much cash. You know, you've paid for the servers and the hosting for that server and the bandwidth for that server within a couple of hours, in some cases, depending on how much revenue you're really generating. 
Um, and that kind of that that's above my pay grade because I'm I'm not the I'm not the finance guy. But these are the stories that I hear from companies that are at this level of scale that make this kind of cash is the serve everything's bought and paid for in the first twelve hours of service that these servers go in. It's crazy so the amount of money then. It's ridiculous and I don't believe it and but it's absolutely true. <laughs> yeah. What, what about you, Christian? What's your thoughts on this one? You know, being a cloud architect, you know, you must be very favorable in wanting to um, get people into the cloud. But what about your own opinion on this? Like, what's, where did your thoughts lie? Yeah, so I, I don't really see the difference between... Uh, so to me, clouds are of two types, public, private, and of course, you have the mixture of two, hybrid. So whenever people... I know that there is a temptation when you see somebody having the title of cloud architect that they would advocate for one of the big American hyperscaler, but I do not share that that view. Like managing your own metal in a cloud-like fashion where you don't need to poke the IT department for, hey, can you give me a server, but rather you just self-serve yourself with virtual machines or maybe have some Kubernetes clusters that can sell a service. That's to me just as much a cloud as what Amazon or Google offers to you. So I would definitely, that, that doesn't bias me in the direction of uh, public vendors. Um, I haven't operated that much in uh, emerging markets. I have used once Alibaba, and if they are worth their gold and they keep their promising, then yeah, I pretty much had experienced, like Sam said, do you have your man on the ground? And Alibaba kind of felt like that was um, bridging that gap to offer a trustful um, platform without needing to have a person on the ground. And I agree to you that if you don't have trustworthy suppliers, a very healthy and trustworthy supplier of markets, then it can be very tricky to go from on-prem solutions. Then again, like I said, I have worked very little in emerging markets and mostly I've worked in US and European markets. And here I feel we have a very healthy and thriving ecosystem of, um, let's say, on-prem cloud vendors. And you can very easily knock on the door and check. And you know, we have serious regulations and ISO certification be being taken here very seriously. So let's just say that we have very good supply of on-prem solutions. Then again, when it comes to cost, um, I very much empathize with, uh, with Jonas and also with what Sam said, that there is a certain scale after which it kind of feels, and we had, we had big examples, that it just pays off to go for your on-prem solutions because you're already having all the expertise in-house, you're already having all the hardware and you can afford it. You're not really, I mean, let's be also very honest, public vendors, they want to sell their services for a profit. So at some point, it kind of makes sense to roll out your own solutions in order for you to capture some of that profit and retain it in-house. Then again, from my experience, I have the feeling that that ceiling is really, really high. So I have seen companies of even like 1,000, 2,000 employees, they just have decided that, you know, our core business um, is not in managing infrastructure. Our core business is not in making sure that the, that we have cameras around servers or that we're locking our, our racks or that we're destroying servers. Uh, sorry, that we're properly disposing of server hard drives when they're decommissioned. So in that case, they just made an, a conscious decision that, you know what, we're going to outsource this problem so we can actually focus the whole conversation in-house on our core business and on, especially I'm working with compliance and information security, you know, on how we can implement these compliance requirements on what we are really good at doing. So I do agree with Sam that they basically ended up shifting CAPEX to OPEX, but I also think that some of the cloud 
public cloud providers, and I have worked mostly with AWS when it came to, to compliance, they might have some more mature processes when it comes to compliance and scalability. And I could see how you could leverage their expertise so that in-house, you know, their, their expertise and their economies of scales, so that in-house you would need fewer resources to satisfy the same compliance requirements. So I would say, I, I, I don't necessarily want to disagree with Sam. I think we're on the same page. I just mandate that, you know, if you're choosing your, the right supplier, that threshold when you should go for public, for, sorry, for M-Prem solutions, just based on a cost argument, might be really, really high. You, you would have to be Dropbox or Apple or somebody really huge for agree. this to pay off. I just, I just happen um, to be in a company right now that's at that scale. And <laughs> yeah. um, I don't think it's going to be just a cost thing. It's going to be a lot more factors that's going to decide if you're going from one side or the other on this. Yeah. yeah. That's what I liked about what Christian said. Is it? If that's that, that's actually a really good point. So uh, move that away. Sorry, Christian, go on. Yeah, that, that's actually a very good point, Jonas, that uh, that you raised. So I have felt that uh, going on-prem, at least with the customers I have worked, was never a cost issue, but rather was a differentiation issue. We had a customer for, for whom it was, let's say, a differentiator to sell to their customers that you know, your data is going to stay in Swedish jurisdiction within Swedish geography. So then the fact that they were managing their own infrastructure wasn't really a burden, but was a core feature. And that makes a lot of sense to pay extra for the talent and the knowledge and, you know, probably also to make the set of mistakes in order to manage infrastructure. On the other hand, we also had many customers who said like, no, we're, we're really a bank. We, we need to make banking smooth. We don't really want to worry about servers and about patching the kernel, Linux kernel and things like that. So in that case for them, it made a lot of sense to just outsource and to potentially tap in economy of scales of public vendor for, for the compliance needs. Yeah, also a cultural shift in the organization, right? Because you build software to deliver on-prem in a certain way and adopting the cloud methods, the best practices might facilitate big changes in how you build your software and how you deploy and it rearranges your teams and roles and responsibilities and it kind of shakes up your, your actual, like the human element as well. Yeah. Uh, Jonas, are you happy with mm. the answers that you've got on that one, or have you got anything Absolutely. To, any no, I... to go off that? <laughs> Not really. I mean, the uh, it's a bit of a discussion point. Uh, yeah. There is no real wrong or right here. You, no. you need to find the uh, your balance, but you need to be aware of the different inputs when you do you make your decisions. Yeah, no, hundred percent. Uh, so Sam, yeah, you jumped in relatively late, so you will have a, I'm sure there's a question that you'd like to pose to the group as well. Um, so yeah, have at it, even though there's less um, preparation time for the other two, I'm sure no, well, it's an interesting I, point to make anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I think, um, my, I think my question is, is really around, if, you know, you, you've gone into these or in terms of really a, a, a migration project from on-prem to, to cloud, um, what has been, I would like to know what everyone's approach has been to the, the, the management of the teams to, in some case, like in, in many cases, these are people who have built up a lot of competence for on-prem technologies, bare metal stuff. And then 
have, have what kinds of strategies have you used to sort of get these existing teams to ramp up one accept their fate of moving to cloud <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and then two sort of begin to get them onboarded into how how they need to start adapting their own practices when moving stuff to cloud yeah. that, uh, christian do you want to take this one first Yeah, I could take this one first. Um, it, it's um, I don't I never really had the the feeling that um, I was ever in a position where I could like use authority to tell people you're going to shift in a cloud. So I'm just going to tell you how I experienced, let's say, as a tech tech leader, um, a decision that was I wouldn't say imposed on me, but that I was bought into leading. And what I noticed is that first of all, it's a transformation that is extremely slow. So I don't see that happening overnight. It requires soft powers. It, con it requires continuous persuasion. It requires continuous training. It requires constantly reminding people of why we are doing this and what are the benefits and what are the gains. I also noticed that um, these projects are more successful on greenfield projects. So generally carve out your legacy and uh, or maybe start a new project or a new feature into the cloud and then the success of that particular project would kind of help again to motivate the rest of organization for oh look we have managed to deploy this particular thing in seven days whereas previously on-prem because we didn't have this component or this component it would have taken us probably a month and these are things that you know they can be used as valuable experience and to make an informed decision in the future on why the transformation from on-prem to public vendors have been chosen that being said pretty much everywhere where i have worked there is still this big chunk of legacy that still hasn't really been touched and in some organizations people are still very optimistic about it will eventually move in other organizations, people have kind of become more uh, more realistic and have just embraced that, yeah, this legacy is going to stay around us. It's going to be there. It's working. There is no point in investing now money to... So lifting and shifting it won't really bring the benefits of the transformation we're looking for. Rewriting it is just increasingly expensive. So it's just something that we will need to you know, live with for a certain while. And then eventually, as more and more functionality is moving into the direction that we want to, that legacy will start to be smaller and smaller until eventually it will be defaced. But like I said, I have encountered quite a few people, even under harsh regular pressures, they, they basically wanted to move not from on-prem to cloud, but they wanted to move from one vendor to another. And they basically just had to, and you know, if you want to uh, pay, in certain regulated industries, you actually have another tariff if you want to that um, that vendor to offer you some compliance specific features. And they just had at some point to accept that, yeah, we're going to have to pay both of these vendors for those compliance features for a certain while because the cost of just moving from one vendor to another is too great. And yeah, this is the cost that we're going to absorb. So I'm, I'm not really sure if it gives you um, an answer to your question or Inside. just... Uh, makes you feel the pain you're going currently through <laughs> but let's just say that you know take it as a slow transformation uh keep people reminding what are the benefits keep having small projects that show the benefits and also at some level just accept that well the legacy is there to stay and it had its function and it's not going to okay. go away overnight no I and mean, yeah maybe it's like therapy you, you felt this pain before <laughs> but if you don't believe in the solution yourself, how can you, as a leader, 
potentially pass that down to the employees that are basically having to reskill their entire, you know, knowledge pool. So if you're not like invested in that idea, if you're not a hundred percent backing it, how do you then convince the people that work for you? Otherwise, that must be one of the biggest challenges. Yeah. So. Um... It's a luxury that I had in the past. For some reason, the homework or actually figuring out why we go for a public vendor was done before I entered that company. And it was always because of very clear reasons. And in my particular case, it was in order to reduce the compliance burden. Um, it was very clear of how much people are spending time in order to to host servers, in order to make sure that you know the server holes are properly secured and, and all of these things that you just realize at some point people don't really feel motivated to deal with. So then when I was given that, okay, this is the reason why we are shifting to public vendors because we, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if this is something that applies to you, Sam, but Google recently came out with a pretty impressive video showing that you basically need to go through six layers of security in order to be able to touch their servers. And I'm, I'm not sure how resourceful King is or how resourceful your on-prem solutions are, but I tend to doubt that that's something that is very easily or very cheaply available in Sweden. And then if you can come up with those kind of motivations, so that homework was done already uh, for me before I entered. And that was kind of convincing me that, yeah, okay, if you really want to stick to these standards, it would be very prohibitive. It would be very expensive. It would just um, not allow us to focus on the things that we care about most. And it was very easy to spread this rather positive message and you know, to kind of find other signals that would motivate other people on why this transformation should happen. But that being said, um, I don't think that I have the right solutions here. It's, it didn't feel to me that it was a you know, like cookbook, do these steps and it works. Rather, it felt like it was a constant persuasion work and there was always, I should also mention this. There was always one of the people that was very skeptical yeah. about everything. And at some point, you know, you just try to convince him. But at some point, you know, once you bought in 80% of the team, they're just going to have to live with this yeah. decision. And that's also fine. <laughs> they, they were skeptical with every single transformation. They're going to be skeptical with this transformation too. If 80% yeah. of people is bought in, that's no, fine. I think that's you. true. I mean, the, it, the thing that sticks with me, it's a lot like being a parent, right? It's like you repeat yourself the same thing again. I'm going to repeat this. We're going to keep repeating this until everyone can repeat it themselves. Yeah. yeah. It's like Bart Simpson writing on the, the and, and of course, you kind of need to repeat it in different ways, right? Yeah. yeah, and you kind of need to repeat in different ways. You don't want to show the same slides, but you kind of want to say like, oh, hey, this is the new company that has made this shift and they report these benefits. And hey, we have this Greenfield project that did this transformation and reported these benefits. Or hey, look at look at the, the new reporting or the new, the lower lead time that we can do thanks to that or, or things like that. Or hey, our public vendor has released this new feature that would take us so much, that is so useful. And we discussed about rolling this on-prem for so long time, but we just didn't have the time for it. And so, so it kind of feels like you need to beat the drum kind of often and yeah, just just communicate and persuade it a lot. I don't know exactly what I'm going to answer here, but um, my situation was that I was the one who actually initiated this. And um, the reason was that we were going to pull the plug on the on-prem that we had. So there was no really, uh, we had to go. There was no, uh, we just needed to do it fast enough in order to actually have something when the plug was pulled. 
and that motivated everyone to actually work towards that goal. That wasn't uh, really an issue, really, when they knew why we were doing it. The Viking strategy. Um, but the, you talked here about different strategies of, uh, as a parent, and I guess you can use the whip sometimes, but I think I rather use the carrot, actually. Yeah, I was thinking that the, what I've heard is the Viking strategy is get everyone on shore and then burn the ships. Yeah. <laughs> then they're forced to stay there. <laughs> uh, I, I have the feeling that, uh, you know, um, also if we, if we continue with the parenting analogy, um, up to some point, you're just trying to convince your kids to good behavior. But at some point, if you notice that nothing really works, you just take the vacuum cleaner, uh, vacuum clean the Legos, and the next time you're just going to see that they're a lot more motivated to clean up after yeah. themselves. <laughs> yeah, not wrong. No, perfect. Sam, did that answer your question to some degree? I know it's a very difficult one. Um, I think it's all circumstantial as well. Um, I think everybody yeah. will be in a different scenario for that one. Any follow up from what they've said um, to lead on? I was wondering if we answered some <laughs> questions or if we just offered therapy. <laughs> I, 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 maybe I'm just seeking validation of my own uh, behavior. That's fair enough. Yeah. No, that's fair. No, but um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, fantastic. We've gotten to the end of the questions uh, that everybody submitted. Um, you know, we've still got 20 minutes. So if there's anything else that anybody else would like to ask, you know, related to on-prem versus cloud or the making a distinction between the different public cloud, well, the, the, some of the public cloud vendors have a discussion about which ones are preferable in certain circumstances in comparison to others. Anybody got any thoughts along that line? I would have a follow-up question at Sam, uh, to Sam. Yeah. So I understand that you're migrating to Google Cloud Platform and you kind of expressed um, a little bit of hesitation to that. I was wondering if, uh, you know, there are vendors and vendors, uh, was there an evaluation of, let's say, all the big cloud vendors? And could, could you share what are I, the reasons why I you settled for Google? I mean, it goes way above the, my own pay grade. And this is, um, as I understand, this is a, there's Activision, there's Blizzard and King, and they are one company, right? Or at least they're traded, traded as, as one. And this is not a deal unique to King. This is a deal that goes across all three. So it, it really feels as though this is mandated from the CFO's office um, that, that it's a deal that was, I, so it's, I'm really not clear. I was, by the time I, I was brought in, these were kind of foregone conclusions. Um, I don't think that there, I don't think there necessarily was an evaluation that anyone in the tech team from King would have been a part of. This was a, a financial negotiation with ABK and Google. Yeah. So we actually have made in I my see. team an evaluation on different bigger vendors, and uh, I'm not going to share the actual results of it. But what became clear to me is it's not really a technical decision or even a financial decision, but there seems to be some kind of uh, cultural or something. Um, 
preference for one or a different vendor and different to the ones that you've talked to. And when you actually look at their arguments, it doesn't really fit with what with the technical or even the financial side of it. So it's I found one thing and then I presented that and then uh, when it was presented elsewhere, it was a completely different story. And that was when I asked the person about this, it seemed like this was, well, we had a bad experience at one point with XYZ and that's why we don't want to go with this vendor. I'm sure that will be the case across all three vendors. Everybody will have mm. good and bad. I don't think that there is anywhere you, that you will have uh, complete success everywhere. No. There will be screw-ups all over the place in different ways. Um, and you can't get away from them, but um, that was what we realized at least. So the, uh, the end result is, uh, I guess we are happy with it. We don't really we can do what we uh, and work with what we the decision that has been made and uh, yeah you've made your bed yeah. now you've got to kind of lie in it yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, i guess that's interesting because one in a former life i was a cto in a digital healthcare company and the the reason we went we in launching the company we went through this process of choosing and i i had a very strong preference for Azure, mainly, mainly because one, we were small, so scale was never our issue. That was not going to be our issue in terms of that. But there's a program you could get into at the time called uh, Spark or Spark Startups, and it was worth basically um, $100,000 over a three-year period. Unlimited, unlimited consumption of all cloud resources. And that was the slam dunk. Um, following behind that though, was that Azure, Microsoft seemed much more serious about pursuing healthcare customers. And their compliance and willingness to sign what was called a BAA, which is a business associate agreement. They were, they were above board and fully willing to do that at no extra cost. Whereas Amazon at the time had quite a few hoops to jump through and requirements in their infrastructure to enable that, which I think would have been cost prohibitive for the startup at the time to the tune of, I think, $1,500 to $2,000 per month just to get in the door. Um, I don't know if that's the case anymore, but it would seem as though that, that and in the two and a half years I was in the company, a lot of startups and a lot of healthcare companies were with Azure because they were so healthcare friendly. So um, I don't know where, where AWS is these days if they're trying to take more of that business or compete, but, but Microsoft made it very easy and made that decision very easy, at least within that niche. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting to have an industry specific cloud vendor. I, I noticed a similar. Um... Yeah, I, I wanted to also echo Jonas's and uh, Sam's, um, Sam's experience that I noticed that sometimes these choices of vendors are rather industry specific. Why should we go for this particular vendor? Well, because everybody else in the industry does that. And it's just a little bit of a yeah, yeah. Fe fear of the unknown. 
I think that in the meantime, AWS might have also uh, improved on how easy it is for them to sign business associate agreement. Then again, I do notice that they notice that compliance is a pretty huge market and that people are willing to pay for it. So they do have, let's say that some of their perks come at an extra charge. Um, I was asking this question because I have used all three platforms at various times, AWS, Google, and Azure. And I don't, I'm not sure I should name them, but I had the feeling that some of them had a vision that was more complete than the others. And that your experience might, depending on what you're trying to achieve, your experience might significantly differ from one vendor to another. Well, my number one criticism of AWS is, and this was a problem my team had as well, we couldn't keep the names of the products straight. We, we were never, it was never easy for us to, to get on board into these specific products. And we never, we never broke, the, broke the barrier. So we ended up just consuming a lot of serverless, a lot of compute, um, the basic services. And those, those services that are supposed to really create a lot of business value, we never, we never were able to break into that and really understand it well enough or scale well enough into it. Um, and that was the case with Azure. That was the, the case with AWS. Azure, the problem was they were very eager to deploy beta or alpha quality products where the, the documentation didn't sync up with <laughs> what was currently in production. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe they're a little too eager to race and compete with AWS in that regard. Yeah. How about you, Jonas? What's your mm, kind of they, they, they might have had at some point some catching off to do. I'm sorry, I didn't understand. Uh, it's just Christian said about catching up to do for Azure to you know keep up to speed with uh, AWS. But uh, Jonas, you've started to move into the cloud yourself now. You were saying, um, you know, well, the your... start, the move was made like. Um few years ago so it's, uh, okay, so it's we still have a few on-prem things that hasn't that that didn't get the pull uh, plug pulled yeah. um, fast enough or in the time that was told in the beginning and uh, still six years after or something like that it still exists there but um, there's different reasons that made it stay um, throughout and one of that was a customer saying uh, we're not going into Amazon at all for example okay. yeah so some of your customers can influence which um, yeah. vendors you're going to use as well so that's probably why hybrid solutions are becoming more and more popular as well for certain companies so they can store certain data in different places yeah but um, it adds a lot of uh, ex extra administration of people that's key in different areas that we don't really have all of them. We need, or yeah, it makes things a bit uh, critical yeah. that some people stay on. Yeah, yeah. 100%. So um, does anybody else have any follow-up questions? Because we've gone through quite a few of them now and we've uh, bounced back and forth a little bit. Is everybody happy with the answers that uh, they got? Any additional questions that they want to ask based on the answers that they've that they've heard i think so no everybody's good yeah right fantastic right so what i'll do here is i'll just um stop the recording